0: This podcast is brought to you by Benjamin, a workflow automation engine that allows advisors to focus on their clients rather than data management. Learn more at getbenjamin.com. Today on Bridging the Gap, I'm joined by a good friend of mine and the president of Nexus Strategy, Tim Welsh. Nexus Strategy is a leading consulting firm to the wealth management industry. And Tim is one of the most insightful, knowledgeable members of our community About wealth tech and the industry as a whole. And Tim and I have an awesome conversation surrounding the technology in the wealth management industry. We talk about Tim's views on the future of technology and where he sees it going. We talk about stepping away from the white glove service and adding automation to your firm. And we also talk about the new marketing rule the SEC has introduced we dig into how sometimes we can get lost on our existing success and losing the opportunity to grow. This is a theme that we have been talking a lot about on both Bridging the Gap and MattRyan.com. and Tim and I dive into it. It was an amazing discussion. So this conversation was a favorite. Tim is one of my favorite people in the industry. You're gonna enjoy it. You're gonna take something away from it. So now, let's turn it over to my conversation with Tim Welsh. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Tim Welsh, president of Nexus Strategy. Thanks for joining us here on Bridging the Gap. How are you, my friend?
1: Uh, very well. Thanks for having me on the show. Look forward to it. I think we've got some really cool things to talk about and keep the audience engaged for sure.
0: How's life and business? I mean, you're, you're helping some of the, the most innovative tech companies come to market and continue to share their message. I mean, What's been kind of the underlying trend in the industry, given kind of the craziness that's happened here in 2022 so far?
1: Well, you know, I think fundamentally, it's the growth and success of the uh, independent RIA space. For years and decades, it's sort of been the unknown entity, and it's just evolved over time, yet it's still the fastest growing. And I think now, over the last several years, we've seen such a response to that growth. And every technology company. That has something that has to do with wealth management or fintech or anything. They're all looking to come to market here. So I never designed the consulting firm to do that. Uh, it just so sort of happened that that we we're sort of an intersection of technology, wealth management, and this independent space to help kind of navigate that. So we've seen all sorts of new models, some variations on a the theme. You know, institutional asset class of piece of software or a, a mutual fund or an investment. They see the opportunity to work with these advisors because they're sophisticated they have high net worth clients, they're growing, yet they don't understand all the nuances. So I think that's really more the theme that's underlying all of this in the industry. Just the success is attracting investment and people coming to market with new ideas. So it's great to be kind of at that intersection and really be able to help contribute to some of the success of these companies who are really looking to engage with advisors.
0: It's interesting that you say, I mean, you didn't build the consulting firm to be kind of in where you are today at that intersection, but it kind of naturally evolved. I'm just curious of how you even got to this point right i mean you started your days at schwab and then you you started your consulting firm i mean were you always in wealth management was this such an industry that you just grew up wanting to be a part of or how did you even start out in this space and then ultimately find yourself at this intersection of such a budding emergence of fintech and wealth managers i mean it's such an interesting journey that you've been on
1: yeah absolutely well i mean before i got to schwab i actually started my career at Merrill Lynch in the 90s like everyone else <laughs> you know it seems like everyone starts at Mother Merrill and then goes somewhere else. It was a great place to start. I mean, out of the 111 MBA analysts they brought into the, the platform there at Merrill, seven of us went into a private client. The other 103 went into investment banking, trading, your typical Wall Street stuff. And I wanted to do that. I said, hey, why are you leaving behind? Why are you putting me into this brokerage stuff? But you know, ultimately, we would work from nine to five on a good day and they would work from five to nine every day. So it really was the opportunity to work with the financial advisors at Merrill Lynch in a broad scale. I mean, we're talking mass marketing. I had like a $30 million budget to buy stuff and try to influence our advisors. And they put me in the financial planning group of all places, which was sort of this guerrilla marketing group. We didn't know what we're doing. And so they sent me on this research and development tour to say, hey, find out how financial planning should be done. And we landed at an association, the FPA, before it was the FPA. And we saw these independent advisors. And I said, that's it. RA's have a great process. They have relationships. They're doing the financial planning. They're doing and manage money. They're not selling products. It's really how wealth management should be done. And this was, again, like 25 years ago. I said, that's it. So we tried to emulate that model, bring it back into the advisors at Merrill Lynch. And by the time I left in 99, we had about 3,000 CFPs. So I think it was definitely a testament that you can move the battleship. It took seven years to do that. But as part of that process, I looked around and I said, no, that's the future. I mean, I know the employee model has got a lot of brand equity and it really drives investor interest, but ultimately these independent advisors are fiduciaries. They're doing it on the right side of the table. So I kept running into this company called Schwab. I mean, at the time, it was smaller than all of our, our big branch office in Manhattan. And I said, you know, that's where the puck is going. I think this custody business where the RIAs are hanging out, that's going to be the future. So when they came calling in 99, I said, absolutely. I've been waiting for you guys to call me and invite me to join And so I went to Schwab for seven years, um, and that was another fantastic learning experience where I didn't know what an advisor's business was. You know, we just were kind of forced to say, instead of just doing this custody thing, why don't we try to add some value to their practice? We sit on top of 5,000 of them. We could probably roll up some really good ideas around practice management or marketing or organizational structures or how do you pay your people or how do you attract and do marketing to investors. And that's sort of what my first project was, just to roll up all those best practices and really get a, a great lens into the business model of financial advisors uh, on the independent side. And along the way, that's sort of what I became. I was sort of like the consultant within Schwab to go through every product that was coming to market out of Schwab, whether it was the Schwab Bank or managed accounts or alternative investments or portfolio center or software. And my team was in charge of rolling it out. It's like, hey, here's what it is. Here's how it's going to impact your business. Um, here's how it can help your process. And we wrapped it in that practice management message, and it, it worked tremendously well. But then it occurred to me, you know, I was never going to be the SVP of anything at Schwab, so I had to do something else. I think it was probably a mutual decision on both sides. So I said, I, the happiest people I know are people like you, Matt. You have your own business. You're independent. You can call your shots. That's what I want to do. So I, I spun the consulting business out of Schwab and just looked around the industry and said, hey, look at all these other companies. We're all trying to do the same thing. They want to position their platform, their product, their service. To help advisors do a better job with their business or with their clients. I know how to do that and I can help navigate that. So I created Nexus Strategy as a consulting firm. That was 16 years ago. And again, my first couple of clients really were software companies because they said, hey, you know what? We think we have this new approach to helping advisors be more efficient to run a better business. They're very manually inefficient, as you know paper clips and glue, spreadsheets and PowerPoints, and they're just cobbling it together yet the potential for them to grow and scale is, is massive. And so with those handful of technology clients uh, that we, we worked with really helped them come up with that message to, to work with advisors and transform their businesses. Um, and that just grew year after year. And then, then all of a sudden, we saw new people coming to market, new applications, new approaches, the cloud. Oh my God, the cloud. How you can transform your stack instead of having software on the desktop I mean that was a whole open a whole slew of new companies to come to market, so I think that was really fascinating, and to be part of that um, really just uh, gave us tons of advantages to be able to come and help define what it means to go to market in the wealth management space, particularly working with RIAs. And so it's been great working with you and your team and what you guys are doing at Benjamin. So I think more to come, you know. So long answer there, but that's how this chaotic journey of you know everyone says you should have a career plan. I'm like, nah, don't worry about it because. <laughs> No matter what you try to do or what you wanted to do, <laughs> opportunity will be there and you'll find a way and your own personality will catch up to what you thought your career should be. And I think that it took a while, obviously, but you know, once you find it, then you can really go forth and prosper. So it's been very fortunate, very grateful for the whole process.
0: I love it. I mean, you've seen both sides of it and right. And that change that you're able to make within Marrow, I mean, that's an impressive and drastic change. And and you've seen the RIA side, you've seen inside the advisor side, and then you've seen the technology side. And you now have this unique perspective to bring it all together, which I think is so valuable and why I just think that there's so much value bring to this podcast and bring to the industry. I'm curious on two points that you mentioned. Is you you've worked with RIAs, right? And and I think RIAs we have many of them that listen to this podcast and they struggle with identifying technology. They struggle with having change within their firm because it's a good business. There's not much that you need to change in your business to have a good, solid business. I'm curious from your days at Schwab, when you were working on the consulting side, working with firms, what did you see and what do you see today as some of the biggest challenges or hurdles that RIAs have in making necessary changes to stay up with the times both for the clients and for their employees. I mean, what's the biggest hurdle that RAs face when it comes to
1: making change and and having that mentality. You know, fabulous observation, uh, Matt, because the I think my early days, you know, they would the sales guys would bring me out to talk to these advisors and then the old older version of them would say, you know, "Sonny, if you're going to tell me I need to grow, then you need to leave right now." I go, "Up" oh. That's all I got, because that was our message was growth. And if they didn't want to grow, or like we have this new account opening process, it's gonna save you hours of time. And they'll say, Well, we open four accounts a year, so I think we're good, you know. It just kinda blows your mindset that we have such a wide spectrum in the independent space, many flavors of ice cream. And the key thing though is that I think the biggest hurdle, as you mentioned, is just their existing success. The phone rings, the referral, they do such a good job. They sort of lose their marketing muscles when they were started, they get comfortable. And it's like anything, you know, it's sort of like, yeah, I'm good. I'm not going to, why should I change? I know this is a slow process and I've got that spreadsheet and there's probably some errors in there. And that macro I wrote 10 years ago is probably missing (laughs) on some of my performance billing and reporting that I'm doing. And, you know, I'm okay with that. But if they can think of themselves and their vision, you know, we don't want to go to trouble mode, like because the business is failing or the business is not working or clients are defecting but more so the opportunity, because again, we all want to aspire to solve the retirement savings crisis in America. But as we know, the delivery of financial advice through a person is expensive. I think the average cost is about $3,000 per account. You kind of do the math and you wonder why every advisor has a $250,000 minimum. Even the smallest of advisors who want to work with the mass market, they still can only work with that sort of asset levels. Yet we know 90% of Americans have less than 100K. So we've already segmented ourselves into a small slot. So I think the bigger picture is if we could make advisors more efficient, they let, they want to do good. They want to work with people. They want to help them succeed, but their capacity is constrained because of the systems and tools and processes that they build. Sort of like, you know, my golf shot starts off straight. The time it lands, it's three fairways over because those inefficiencies <laughs> tend to build upon themselves. And next thing you know, you're still trying to run 100 clients on a creaky system. If I have to change that, that's kind of onerous. So I need something to really inspire me to make that change. And it could be for growth. It could be for the next generation of advisors in my business. It could be because, hey, I want to do more for my community. So they have to land on something that's aspirational. And I think the good news is there's lots and lots of those messages hanging out there and the demand for their services really is going to drive this. I don't know if I gave you the answer you wanted there, but I think they have to have that mindset. And the good news is, this next generation coming in, they do have that mindset. They really want to turbocharge this. So maybe it's not going to be this decade, but you know, seven years from now, eight years from now, when they, all these founders sort of move on or retire, that's when this thing is going to really hit the gas and we'll see some tremendous growth and doubling, tripling the AUM, this, this segment of the marketplace, I think is very feasible. For sure.
0: And you bring up a good point, right? Because that's where I was going to go with it. Something that you may not have even seen yet in this industry is that you started working with Gen 1 of these firms and saw them grow, right? And that's been the first 25 years of the way. But now we're going through this like really interesting period of time where it's a transition period from Gen 1 to Gen 2. And the Gen 2 grew up in a technological framework and they have expectations that are different, not even their clients, just the employees And that is like a challenge. That's a rub to help. That's a big lift that Gen 2 has to go about. And Gen 2 comes in with a different mentality. They're more service-oriented technology forward, where Gen 1 was more sales client servicing, right? Like, I'm just going to sell them and serve the client the right way. I don't care about any of this technology stuff, which is a whole different dynamic, which kind of leads to my next question is like, you had a prediction that the RIA space was the way to go. You said it when you were at Merrill. You said that that's the future so then I'm going to ask you to make another prediction for the next 25 years. What is the future? Is it going to be the RIA space? Are we just shifting from going from the wirehouses to RAs, which is what's happened over the past 30 years or so? And then are we just going to shift back to having like wirehouses just in an RIA structure with all these roll-ups and bigger firms? I mean, what does the future of our industry in your mind look like given your experiences?
1: Well, I think it's always going to be fragmented. And I say this because It's tough to do a roll-up, as you know. Maybe you could buy 100 firms or even 200 firms. That still means there's 25,000 that are not part of your roll-up because of the approach to the size and style of advisors. You're a mutual fund allocator. I'm an individual security person. You've got this type of software. I've got another one. The synergies are not always there on this M&A approach. Yeah, you can onboard AUM and you can onboard advisors, but because of the ability to open up an RA firm with a MacBook Pro and an iPhone, that's all you need pretty much. And you can uh, operate your business with a Form ADV and a website. We don't need to be community-based anymore. If anything, the pandemic opened the door to anybody being able to serve anybody across the country because it's all doing what we're doing now through video, Zoom, et cetera. And I can show up in real time, in person, engage with you, help you with your plans, help you with your investments, and you're happy with that. And that didn't exist three years ago, four years ago. So I think the ability to create a new business is going to be so easy to do that they'll continue as much as it consolidates, then people who were not happy there, they're going to break away. You'll have breakaways from the breakaways. So I always think it's going to be fragmented. It's going to be independent. Again, you mentioned the tools will get better and better. So you can operate a business as a solo entrepreneur. If you want to have a team, you have great opportunities to do that as well. So I I still believe that it will never ever just get down to 40 firms or 50 firms or whatever it is. It will continue to be independent. And if you look sort of the, the way the um, other countries have evolved, like in the UK or in Australia, they've always had an independent approach. Even though they have these massive banks that dominate, they still have a large swath of the financial services world going through these independent channels. And I, And I think everyone supports that. You've got Technology providers, you've got asset managers, you've got everyone who says, you know what, this is a great model. It's fiduciary. There are no conflicts. The bigger you get, the more politics come into play inside the organization. And that may again limit the growth. So, long answer to your question. But again, I, I still think RA is absolutely independence. I think, if anything, the wirehouses and the banks, they're going to want to support an independent channel. Because if you let somebody free and, and clear to do what they want and do what they do well, no compliance burdens in terms of your. Departments on top of them, or you have to get everything approved. That just slows them down. So we've seen unleashing the advisor and their talents on their own. The flip side of that, qu- the story I just told you is that you know advisors are not that great at running a business. <laughs> so maybe there'll be a whole nother career arc of professional management that could step in and help run these businesses because I think that's what everyone's in search of. We had the chance at the Persian conference a couple of weeks ago to speak to the students. And the students are saying, hey, what what kind of a career should I have? You know, and they put me up there. I said, well, you don't have to be an advisor. You know, you don't have to work with clients. You can absolutely be in the business side, the tech side, the marketing side. This industry is just getting rolling. So I still think it'll be this whirling dervish for the next 50 years.
0: Yeah. And I think that that idea of the professional management side of things where you you can come in and that you need some professional organization. I always call it, you need to business size your business is going to be there. And I think also where this is leading to is a conversation I've had with a lot of marketing minds like you as well, is that it's going to be about the niche going forward, right? Like having niches is going to be really important. I just got off a call with another gentleman who, I mean, they're focused on helping CPAs build their own wealth management firms. So you could start seeing like, Accountants and estate attorneys and insurance people. I mean, insurance is already doing it, but building their own wealth management firms because it's so easy to do and to get there. But the challenge is is that we talked about a little bit earlier. We've got antiquated technologies, but we haven't necessarily needed to move the technologies. And our processes are, are kind of burdensome because it is a people business, which makes it costly to manage relationships, which then leads me to the back office. And you wrote an article called AI Bringing Sexy Back to the Back Office recently. And you talked about the promise of some of these new technologies for advisors and it's been a promise that's been going on for years almost decades of like hey we're going to get there but now it seems like we're in this time of opportunity to where the back office really could be revolutionized and become sexy again to some extent
1: i fundamentally agree with you and that's why i wrote that piece because you know we heard sort of like all these great predictive analytics with AI, you know, you're going to be able to know your client's going to get married or they're going to move to another state because they got a new job and you'll be able to glean that through big brother databases. And that never really played out, but we do know workflows. We do know that the ability to automate this stuff, that exists. And you can use AI to be able to predict, okay, you know what, Your business is going to be able to do this because we're reading all these new account forms and we're seeing all this new stuff. Here's some insights. And here's the bottlenecks in your operations. We can now use that to be able to streamline a lot of the workflows and use automation tools that are available now. And of course, you're only as good as your infrastructure. If you are on quicksand with all your stuff and it's all paper clips and glue and you put 10 more clients on top of that, it could just blow up the whole thing. So, you know, again, it's almost like the e-myth if you go back to that book about, you know, people who run businesses, they have systems, you know, approaches, everything's mapped out. So anybody coming in new can just pick up the manual. Oh, this is what I do. And then there's no training. You just get up and running. If you have that invested ahead of time, then you can grow, then you can scale, then you can do all this great stuff. So I firmly believe that back office can be, if you want to start somewhere and improve your business, let's go take a look back there and say, how are you doing business? What's the process automation you could figure out And then use tools like Benjamin and all these ones that can really then, all right, now we got this process done. Let's automate it. It can't be that hard. The tools exist. So that's why I wrote that article really to try to bring some focus back away from sort of the marketing stuff of AI to really operations and how to fix it
0: right it's a, It's about what are the actionable elements of AI because AI is like a marketing term, right to what you're saying it's like it's it's a it's a sexy word and you know on a one pager in an ad. but what does it mean to me and how I do my business? and you think about the evolution of technology over the past ten years, ten years ago, this probably wasn't possible because APIs weren't as open, companies weren't as open minded to opening up their ecosystem, but we're there now. The question I do have though, and, and I had another conversation with with a big technology firm recently, and there's still lots of big players that control a lot of the big data in this space. And in order for this to really continue to keep momentum is that you need some of them to start opening up and be more open-minded to the landscape, the changing landscape of open APIs and connectivity and integration. In your mind, where do you think we are in that stage of the game? Are we in the the ninth inning where everybody's there? Uh, are we in the first inning? And then my question would be is what needs to happen in our industry to get us to the next inning or next kind of frame in this kind of trajectory of getting these integrations and openness of APIs? I think that that's the big challenge, the right start getting that even greater momentum for the industry.
1: Well, I think we're still in batting practice. (laughs) The game hasn't even started because you're right. There's not a lot of benefits for the large players to share and be open architecture because that's their competitive advantage. They want to keep the clients, keep the advisors, keep the assets. So that's kind of where they're coming from. So you're right. The open architecture approach is always better. We've always found that if you open it up, people innovate. I mean, just look at the app store on your iPhone. Apple said, all right, We'll let everybody in here. Come on in. You've got something cool, drop it in. And guess what? It proliferated and it drove the usage and the value of the phone. And we call that a network effect, but that takes guts. You know, it's like, wow, we're not gonna get away our secret sauce. There's no way. Because what if somebody else takes it and it copies us? But if you're at scale and you have all the data, like a custodian or a massive tech platform, you're only gonna be constrained by the your ability to grow yourself. But if you open it up, Just like the custodian model, like once they opened up to RIAs and independent advisors, hey, come on down. You can use my mutual fund, one source supermarket, and you can use my other tools. And all of a sudden, wow, you know, now the custodians are the holders of trillions of dollars that they never had before. So, you know, that mindset of a pure platform, open architecture, that's what we need to have. Because if you do that, then you don't have to sell. You'd say, you know, all these people, all these applications, all these connections, all these APIs, let the love flow. I mean, let it out. And that's what we need, you know, a consistent data standard uh, that's been elusive, as you know, for a variety of reasons. So if we could crack that code, somebody's brave enough to do it. And I think we are starting to see it. I think, you know, some of the new development approaches with microservices and data warehouses and data lakes and being able to do that. Now all of a sudden, those integrations are much better. Those tools flow better. Advisors are going to see it and say, "Hey, I want that. I know you want to be closed and make me put all my accounts on you." Great example: uh, Pershing X. They call it Pershing X, but it's not part of Pershing. It's part of the Bank of New York Mellon, and that is open APIs. They're going to have a wide open tech stack, multi custodian. So they finally figured out, you know, the only way one of these tech bundles are going to work is if we take it off the custodian platform and open it up so that actually has a chance to succeed meanwhile we know the other tech bundles all you know had miserable deaths and they (laughs) billions of dollars were spent and nothing happened so that i think was the ingredients we need to make this really go
0: so i want to i want to flip it to one more aspect i want to stay in this vertical but i want to flip it to the other side because i see it from one side you see it from coming from both angles of how to utilize this technology to better your, your business and to better your back office and to create efficiencies. And automation, though, is something that seems like a bad word right now inside the industry because everybody says, well, this industry is a people business industry. If I start automating, then that starts lowering my the people touch points and the white glove service that I provide to my clients. And and so there's this kind of like, I feel like we're at the beginning stages of back in the day with bill pay, right? With online bill pay, you had three segments of people. You had this one set of people that was like, yes, let's jump in. I love this idea of using internet to pay my bills. And then you had this other set of people who were like, whoa, 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 whoa. The internet is scary. And then you had this other set of people who said, you know what? I don't need to automate something that's so simple. Why would I ever do that? It only takes me one or two minutes to write a check. I feel like we're at that beginning stage. So to, to firms that are saying, Automation downgrades my service model to my clients. What would be the response that you have from your seat of being a consultant, seeing firms that have excelled in this and then seeing firms that tried it but didn't necessarily excel? I'm, I'm curious from your standpoint.
1: Well, I would say that they've got the wrong argument because the more you automate, and the more you streamline things, the better the client experience. You know, we've seen this over and over again. Amazon, remember the days if you wanted to get a book to go on vacation? You'd have to, like, two weeks before the trip, drive to the mall, fight people for a parking spot, go into the Barnes and Noble, hope they had the book you wanted. Then you pick it out. Then you have to wait in line and somebody's writing a check. It could take an afternoon to get that book for your vacation. Meanwhile, you don't have to think about it. You land in Tahiti, you're on the beach, you pull out your Kindle, your iPad, your iPhone, and within three swipes, you've got the latest John Grisham novel right there. That is an unbelievable client experience. Guess what? That was an entire form-driven workflow automation process. And that's the highest level of service I can think of versus the other way to do it. So that's, I think if they calibrate their thinking in terms of that approach where automation is actually client experience, client enabling. they don't want to talk to you basically. I know you want to talk to your clients, but this next gen, they don't. And even if they do want to talk to you, they say, you know what? Just tell me what I need to do and we'll get it done. So the service level is really your advice that's what your service is you're giving them really good advice and what to do and then if you take 3 weeks to open the account and send them four forms and have it rejected because it's manual and somebody wrote a 7 instead of a 2 now you're degrading your service level so it's totally the wrong definition of service and so you have to have this digital approach because that's what everybody wants and even the 95 year olds are sending texts you know i text with my dad and he's 80 something You know, and he's sending me emails with stuff I should be thinking about, you know. There is no generational gap with tech anymore. Maybe 10 years ago, you could make this case. But I I think this need to rethink of it, recalibrate it to the best service companies you can think of. And they're all technology, automation. There are no people behind the wheel because they're doing such a great job. I mean, the systems are thinking, making it simple, creating the shortcuts. That's service. And so why would you want to not have that in your business? I I That just... You know, makes me scratch my head, so we try to be more proactive and say, Let's start there, let's go, whatever you're doing right now, let's automate it, tell you what you're going to get. And almost always, they realize, You know what? This is so much better. Why did we ever do it that way before? I'm never going back. Uh, so th- that's the key. Just more, I think maybe it's just rephrasing the conversation will maybe hopefully change their minds,
0: yeah. I think that that's so spot on. And it reminds me of a Carl Richards. I was looking at one of his sketches and it's a matter of like, what does the advisor want to talk about and what the client wants to talk about or wants to hear. And it's like drastically different. The advisors always want to say something or talk about something. And it's similar to this, right? The advisors think that they don't need automation because it changes the relationship. Whereas a client saying, "Give me more automation to make my experience better," it's it's a very similar conversation. It was we saw it before the pandemic. All advisors said that their clients didn't want Zoom Zoom conferences or DocuSign, but then during the pandemic, they were forced to, and they saw that their clients did want it. And so that is evidence that that they do want it. And th- there's so much changing in our space. The changing of how we think and do our business. You know, our core value is still helping families and you know reach their financial goals. But there's a lot changing. And I'm interested on this one aspect because I think it's going to be a drastic change to the industry is the new marketing rule that the SEC brought in, right? The new marketing rule now allows for testimonials. We've never been able to have our clients tell the world via marketing how we do, how well we've helped them. Now they're opening this up and you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see a Yelp for financial advisors sometime soon, where all advisors are getting star ratings like Uber drivers, etc. How do you see this from your lens? I mean, being a part of the industry, how do you see this changing the landscape, and how do you think firms can
1: positively use these new rules to benefit themselves? I think it's a monumental change. It is so overdue. If you ever been to like LaGuardia Airport, right? You know, and that guy comes out and says, "Hey, you want a ride?" You know, meanwhile, sign saying, do not accept rides from these people. They're not licensed. They're not regulated. But guess what? If you pull out your Uber app and you type it in, guess who's you're getting hit? You're getting in his car because he's now just all of a sudden been vetted by an application. We call it building trust online. Social proof that this is a good thing, like Airbnb or any of these platforms. We're getting into strangers' cars. We're staying at strangers' homes. And we don't even think twice about it. Like, oh, yeah, absolutely. That's how we should do it. You know, meanwhile, I'm pretty sure our mother told us never get into a stranger's car. And yet now we do without even thinking about it. That social proof, the ability for clients to talk about what their advisor did for them, I think is going to be very powerful. And you're going to want to harness that if you are uh, an advisor. You know, just do a survey. Reach out to your c- clients. Say, hey, what do you like about what I do? How did I help you? And they'll send it back to you. And you go, ta-da, I've got a Testimonial. I've got a review. I've got all this great stuff. I can use it now um, because I didn't compensate my client. I just asked them the question, and they gave it to me. So you can get rid of all that compliance weird stuff of paying for testimonials. So it's a new world. I think people are just getting their toes wet in it. But that to me will be the definitely a transformation uh, because everything we do, you know, restaurant recommendation, you know, haircuts, uh, hotels, vacations, we immediately go to Google and look it up. And see what the reviews are so to your point about yelp for advisors I, it already exists it's called Indiefin. they already do that they already have one like that because we're just like everybody else you look up your dentist you look up your accountant your lawyer why not would you look up a financial advisor that maybe you'll be able to see that proof say, oh they work with this niche to your point about a niche they work and they provide this service and they listen and they've got real people telling me that this is true boom i'll hire them right away and the selling cycle just goes from. Six months to six minutes. Think about that. I think that's huge.
0: I I think it's such a game changer, and I think that it's always the dilemma of regulation versus not regulation. I understand why there needs to be regulation in our industry because of we're dealing with money and people's financial future. But the ability of you know a lot of the regulation hasn't even been updated for you know the evolution of the internet, which is it's just a challenge for our industry. That's why we're so behind the curve. So wrapping, putting a bow on this before we let we let you go. And I want your, I just love your feedback on this. It's like in order for technological innovation to be accelerated in our industry, we need to continue to have some more regulation innovation like we saw with this SEC marketing rule to continue to happen for us to get some of that supercharged. Do you think that that's true or do you think that it can happen without the help of regulation Or would maybe regulation just put some fuel on that fire and that acceleration?
1: No, you're absolutely right. I mean, because of the temptation that other people's money brings up and there are bad actors, the law of large numbers says you're going to have some people who take advantage and commit fraud. It's just human nature. We're going to have that. So you have to protect clients from that. So the rules are there for a reason. You know, they were written in 1940. Actually, was to protect honest investment advisors, if you actually read the text in there. So, Because obviously there were non-honest investment advisors back in 1940, so they had to write this rule. So regulation is definitely needed. I know there's always like, we got too much, too much compliance. It's, quite, it's slowing me down. I can't do this stuff. But if you think about like cryptocurrencies or digital assets, they're only going to be accepted and get widespread adoption if there is a regulatory framework around it. Because right now, that talk about the Wild Wild West, who knows? I mean, these stable coins go from $80 to one cent and... Fortunes and people's lives are crushed. And these are unsophisticated people buying this stuff. Why would we ever inflict this upon our society? But we need to have some guardrails. And I think the minute those guardrails go up in digital and crypto, it will explode. It'll take off because people have confidence and trust. Right now, it's just scandal after scandal. And eventually, people are just going to say, you know what, this is a fraud. Or what did Warren Buffett call it? Rat, Rat poison squared. That stuff is pretty hefty, you know, rhetoric around... A digital currency that could maybe transform the internet and how we work as an economy, the potential is there. So I think there's absolutely a need and a desire and demand to have smart regulations. And if it doesn't work, I mean it only took them 82 years to change the rule for the marketing rule to allow for testimonials. So that that kind of changes way too slow, obviously. But you know, once they modernize the rule based on how people experience goods and services and shop and search for things, it's a natural one to go. So why do we not allow advisors to let their clients tell their story? So I semi-answer to your question, definitely we need it, but it has to be smart and it has to be based in reality and common sense on how people find advisors and how advisors work with clients. And that's why, again, I think the fiduciary model, other clients' interests come first, that has to be an underlying tenet of all of this because that's trust. And that gets you out of the realm of, well, why did you give me this mutual fund when there was a better one over there? You're like, it doesn't matter to me. I only get paid by your success. That is such a great answer. And that's, again, fueling the RAA space.
0: Yeah. And in our next podcast that we do, we'll talk on crypto because that's a whole nother market, right? I'm interested to see how they're going to regulate an an innovation that was all built on being deregulated and and disintegrated. And uh, it'll be interesting to see from that standpoint, because I agree it's a potential game changer but there needs to be some guardrails there tim welsh i mean you're i i've been fortunate to be able to work with you for a long period of time and and be call you a friend and your insight is extremely valuable so i'm so appreciative of your time but before i let you go i got to ask my two standard questions to every guest i can't let you go without them because then i'm just doing a disservice to our to our listener base and you know the first one is is What's one of those books, whether you're reading it now or that you've read it in the past, that you you think is just one of those great books that people in our industry, whether they're in it's wealth management or leadership or business, should read? What's one of those uh, those great books to help people continue to learn? Because I think these conversations help learn, and books do as well. That's for me as well. What's one of those books for you?
1: Yeah, this is going to come out of totally left field, but it's a Sea Biscuit, and Sea Biscuit is the story of this racehorse that this entrepreneur in San Francisco, obviously in my hometown he wanted to race this horse against the east coast oligarchy of horse racing and they would never want to go with them the west coast and he just persisted he used such innovation around pr and promotion and hosting events and just his entrepreneurship to get this horse in front of those other the the establishment it's very much the independent ra story i believe because like hey here's wall street here's the the way financial services is done you guys are the underdogs. You guys are the outliers. You are the ones who are innovating. And what he did in that book is just a fascinating tale. It's also very inspirational of what can accomplish. And I'll spoil the ending because of course, yeah, Seabiscuit wins, but it's just a great tale. And I think a lot of lessons and management, um, you know, tenets are embedded in there that you wouldn't expect. And it's a great read. So Seabiscuit.
0: Love it. Love it. I think that's an awesome, awesome option. And I'll add it to my bookshelf right up there to the right. Last question. And this comes actually from a conference that you and I were at. You helped me to get there, which was the Barons conference. And one thing I took away from that conference was that after every session, they asked their guests, what's one piece of actionable advice that the audience should take away from our conversation? And I love that. I think that's so awesome. So I've actually taken it, but I give credit where credit's due. So to you, what's one piece of actionable advice do you think our listeners should take away from our conversation here today?
1: Uh, well, I think it's we're a consulting firm. We do strategy. It's often that people don't really have a vision or a goal or an objective of where they want to be in five years or how this business could take. So the one piece I do is I you know, sit down, get out that whiteboard and say, right, three years from now, two years from now, what do we want to be? Who do we want to be? Who do we want to work for? Those are fundamental questions. Maybe you started that with your firm 25 years ago, but just... Doing that exercise, you know, you don't have to have a formal, you know, round table of 22 people. Just a piece of paper and a pen, just draw it out, and then all of a sudden you'll have five things to do. We need more tech. We need more this. We need that. You'll get a hit list of things that can transform your business, and then take one of those, not all of them, just take one, and and run with that for the next six months and see what happens. I think that that to me is it's so hard in strategic planning to build a monster big. Plan, but really not being able to execute on it because it's too big. But just pick one thing and go for it. That's what I would recommend. I love it.
0: I love it, Tim Welsh. You're the man, and you just have so much knowledge. And everybody's probably learned so much from you here today on this conversation. And so I'm, I'm asking if people want to continue to follow all of your great work and all of your great insights and continue to learn and uh, be involved with what you're doing. How can they keep following you and stay in touch with you?
1: Well, just check out Twitter. You know, we're out there. At Nexus Strategy, that's the handle, and you know, like to uh, write articles and columns. So, some of the magazines you see out there, like Think Advisor or RE Biz, you'll see my byline. And again, I go to every conference there is. So, if you're at a conference, come find me because I'll be there.
0: And he is quoted in every article that matters. Let's just say that. Every article that matters in this industry, Tim Welsh is quoted in. Tim, super appreciative of your time spending it with us here on Bridging Gap. So thank you so much and stay well and can't wait to see you again here
1: soon at one of the conferences. Thank you, Matt. Really appreciate it. Great program. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think.